I do want to sort of set just the smallest of stages as we begin taking a look at this text of the first seven verses of Hebrews chapter 13. And basically what I want to do is I want to remind you of the broader context of the book of Hebrews. You see, what we have in front of us in these first seven verses are very practical instructions on how we should live our Christian life. And ladies and gentlemen, that's important. We need to hear from God, do this and don't do that. We need to hear it. I need to hear it. And I don't believe I'm alone. I think this is a common ground that we all have together. We need this ethical instruction on how we should behave. But I do want to remind you, as has been demonstrated by all of this letter to the Hebrew Christians that we've come up to, all this Jesus-exalting, sacrifice of Jesus-focused explanation of what Jesus did for us on the cross, we need to remind ourselves that the core of the Christian life is not what we do for God. The core of the Christian life is what Jesus Christ did for us, especially what he did for us on the cross. Now, what we do for Jesus is important, but it's secondary after what Jesus has done for us. But we understand this from the entire book of Hebrews, and we understand that what we come to now comes at the end of a long section where with great power and great eloquence, he's spoken to us about who Jesus is and what he did for us on the cross. Because when we take a look at the text we're going to examine this morning, we see that it speaks very practically about how we should live. It's going to talk about general love among believers. It's going to talk about having a concern for people who are imprisoned. It's going to talk about sexual morality. It's going to talk about materialism and contentment in the present age. And it's going to talk about recognizing leaders who lead well. I mean, that's very just down and basic instruction to us about how we should live and how we should think. And so we want to approach this and just let the text of the scripture speak to us right here, right now. Verse one. Let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. Notice how he begins, verse 1, a very practical instruction to you and I how we should live our Christian life. Let brotherly love continue. I love how he points out there that he assumes that it's present. For the right of the Hebrews, it's unthinkable that there would not be brotherly love among believers. But rather, his plea is not that it should be there, but that it should continue. And I think that's a very needful word to our own congregation. Ladies and gentlemen, I think that God has given us, and, and, and through the work that God has done in this congregation over the years, we have an atmosphere of love amongst ourselves, and I thank God for it. But you know what? It needs to continue. And it's not going to continue by accident, but rather it's going to continue as believers say, no, because of the work Jesus Christ has done in my life, I want to love other people. I want to look beyond myself and beyond my own circle and seek to love others. Matter of fact, there's something in this of that very essential Christian message of hospitality. Hospitality simply means to love strangers. And if you Look around in this room. There's enough of us here where a lot of people in this room are strangers to you. But you need to still love them. 
You still need to come and operate within our community with an attitude that just doesn't say, well, look, I'm interested in myself and what I get about it, or I'm only interested in the small group of people I know. And I know sometimes it's an inflammatory word, but I'll use it in my own clique. I got a clique. I got a circle of people around here. Those are the people I'm interested in. The other people, well, whatever, man, they're just faces in the crowd. No, they are your brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And so we need to have a zeal about us that says, not only should there be brotherly love in our midst, but it must continue. And there's almost a sense of adventure in letting it continue. Because notice what he says in verse 2. He says, do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. The idea here, and let's be honest, this is a startling idea. The idea is that somehow God will, in some ways, in, in, in some method, he'll plant actual angelic beings in our midst to see how we're going to treat them. Isn't that kind of shocking to you? You look around nervously to the people around you right now. You're looking for maybe a trail of feathers behind them to indicate some abnormal, you know, shape on the back of their whatever. Now, look, I believe that spiritually speaking, in their spiritual presence, there are angelic beings present among us right now. The Bible says that angels are constantly around the people of God and that they have an interest in what happens among congregations when they gather. So I don't doubt for a moment that there are angels present around us right now in a spiritual presence. But I want you to consider the idea that as well in our daily life, whether it's as a congregation or in what we do, rubbing shoulders with the community around us, you may have angelic encounters that you know nothing about. It's kind of like the secret shopper that comes into the store, right? Planted in there to see how they, and don't you think God might have sort of a secret angel operation that goes on from time to time in our midst to see how we will treat other people because God cares about it. God cares about how we will treat the stranger. If we will have a hospitable attitude towards other people. And so friends, I just ask you, as you do an honest examination of your own life, of your own heart, how are you doing with loving people that are just outside of your own group? Do you open up your home? Do you open up your life? I got to say that one of the great blessings of my life and my marriage to Ingalil is that she is an extremely hospitable person. Me, I'm sort of moderate on the hospitality scale, but Ingalil, she excels. And so our home has always been a home of hospitality. We always have people over. We're always having people in and we enjoy it. And I think that this is something that God wants, not just for our family, not just for leaders in the church, though they have a special responsibility to be hospitable, but for all of us to say, Lord, I want to love others. Now, I'm going to be very straightforward. This always carries some risk, does it not? And one of the risks that it carries is whenever we do good for somebody else, wherever we entertain others or or give them something or provide something for them, we want to make sure that we are doing them good and not harm. Because sometimes giving a person what they ask for is not helping them at all. Uh, If somebody asks if they can stay at their home, but at your home, But for them to stay at your home would be supporting them in a destructive lifestyle that they're living. You're not helping that person by giving them a place to stay. Look, let's face it. We interact with this dynamic on the streets of Santa Barbara all the time, don't we? There's people who are looking for, 
I, I don't know whatever you would call it, if you want to call it handouts, begging, asking for donations, whatever. There are people who would like you to give them something and you interact with them. And I don't know what your attitude is towards those people. I'll tell you what my attitude is. Generally, I like to have a very giving heart, but I try to be very discerning. Maybe it's by stuff I can see or maybe it's just by wisdom that I hope the Holy Spirit gives me. I try to discern if I give this person a dollar, if I give this person something, is it going to help them or is it going to hurt them? And, And if I think that there's a chance, a good chance it could help them, then I try to be very open. But I'll tell you what I often do. I can't say I do this every time, but I do it often. I pray for them before I give them the money. I, I don't think I've ever told you this, do I? I, I do this from time to time. Uh, somebody will ask me, you know, sir, could you help out? You, you, you know the routine. You live here in Santa Barbara. And I say, uh, well, do you mind if I pray for you first? And, and I got to ask, I'm going to pray a pretty strong prayer. Is that okay with you? Well, yeah, okay. I've never had somebody say no. It's amazing how sometimes spiritual people get when they're asking you for a little bit of money. And so this is what I pray. I'll take out a couple dollars or maybe five dollars or something like that. And I'll hold it in my hand. And before I let go of the dollar, I pray this. I say, Lord, if this is a good person who loves you and is going to use this money for good in their life, if this money will be a blessing for them, then I pray that you would bless this money and cause more to come their way. And then I pause. But then with great sincerity in my voice, I pray this. But God, if this money is going to go to drugs or alcohol or pornography or something destructive in their life, I pray that you would curse this money and it would be the last money they see in a long, long time. <laughs> That's a great prayer to pray. And then I always say, now, do you want the money? <laughs> Most of the time they say yes. But listen, I've had people say, no, no, thank you. I won't take it. Because I mean it. And I tell them right in the face. I say, listen, I believe God's going to answer this prayer. And if you're going to use this money for destruction, God's going to put a curse upon this. And this will be the last money you see for a long, long time. Because, look, my interest isn't in putting some spiritual trip on them. My interest is in helping them. And supporting somebody in a destructive lifestyle is not helping them. I want to love them and do good for them and not unwittingly do harm. Now, one other thing we got to take a look at this text is notice here. It says in verse three, he also says, remember the prisoners as if chained with them. Those who are mistreated since you yourselves are in the body also. Notice the thinking here. Number one, we have this idea. Let brotherly love continue. One way you show that is being by being hospitable, by loving the stranger. And some of you are going to, in this great adventure, you're going to entertain angels without knowing by doing that. That's one aspect. But here's another aspect. Another aspect of letting brotherly love continue is by reaching out to those who are imprisoned. And I think that there's two main ideas. And I'll give the lesser idea first. The lesser idea is in doing what we call kind of in church circles. We call it doing jail ministry or prison ministry where people from a congregation go out and they go into a jail or they go into a prison and they seek to love, to bless, to teach the Bible, to do evangelism, to counsel, to do whatever they can to minister to people who are behind bars. And ladies and gentlemen, that is a great ministry and it should be encouraged in our midst. I'm very happy that we have people active in our congregation who do that and more and more people should do it it's a great great thing but to be honest i don't think that that's the particular focus of the texture though i think it's included under it i think the particular focus is on our brothers and sisters who are in prison for the sake of the gospel 
You know, when I say that, I think of this man named Saeed Abdini, who is in an Iranian jail right now for preaching the gospel. This man is in prison. And a matter of fact, his case has gotten a lot of notoriety. His case has gotten a lot of attention. And that's a good thing. But when I think of this man and his condition being in an Iranian prison right now in, in, in a terrible situation, in a horrible injustice being done unto this man, I think of him as almost being a representative or of a marker of hundreds or maybe even thousands of more who we don't even know their names. We don't even have a face for them, but they languish in jails. And so we say, Lord, whatever we can do to help people like that, however we can pray, however we can support, however we can remember them, Lord, we should do this. And this is an expression of brotherly love. Okay? Now, that's the idea of brotherly love, but that's not the only thing he's going to talk about. Look at verse 4. Now he's going to focus on marital love. Verse 4. Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. That's a very straightforward verse, isn't it? And as I think about it, there's basically three parts to it. The first part is marriage is honorable among all. The second part is, and the bed undefiled. And the third part is, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. I'll be very honest with you. I could do a three-week message on this particular verse because each one of those things would merit a very in-depth explanation. And maybe that's something we'll do in the future because I think it would be very apropos. But let's just give a quick overview of those three concepts. The first one, marriage is honorable among all. Friends, the Bible holds high the ideal of married life and the institution of family. Now, I recognize that's a little bit awkward to talk about in this day and age. One reason why it's awkward, just a lot of people aren't married. And this is an increasing trend in our society. There's a lot of people who have never married. There's a lot of people who were married, but maybe their marriage is split up through divorce. There are a lot of people who are widows. And it's always a little bit awkward for me as a pastor to speak about marriage because I know that it's important biblically that the Bible puts a high priority and gives great important instruction on marriage and family from a biblical perspective. But also know this, that when you talk like that to people who aren't married, so often they feel so excluded. They feel like they're on the outside looking in. Well, I guess God has a wonderful plan for you if you're married, but if I'm not married, I... I guess like I'm in the, you know, the garbage can or something like that. Some strange thing. I guess I'm not in God's will. No, friends. God has a will and a plan for every person in their station in life. And whether your singleness is ordained by God for the rest of your life or whether it's something temporary and God will bring you a spouse at another time. This is what you need to understand that whether married or single, God has something in our life. But. I hope you'll give me the grace and the opportunity to speak to things about marriage and family, even if that doesn't apply to your life situation right now. Because it is important for us to speak to this as individuals and as a culture at large. So, friends, that's one reason why it's difficult to talk about this idea of marriage is honorable among all. But I'll tell you another reason why it's difficult. Number two, I would say it's difficult to speak about this today because this principle is becoming less and less true in our society as a whole. You really can't say that marriage in our society is becoming more honorable in the perception of the culture. I'd say it's becoming less and less honorable every year. 
Wouldn't you say that marriage is dishonored by divorce? And look, I don't say that to condemn anybody. I'm talking about whether the divorce was justified, whether it was unjustified. I'm not going to get into all of that right now. I'm just saying in general, don't you think that marriage is dishonored by divorce? Don't you think that marriage, sometimes in an even greater way in our culture right now, marriage is dishonored by people who simply live together outside of marriage? Did you know that statistically speaking, fewer and fewer people are getting married and more and more common people just live together without the commitment of marriage? They live together as if they were husband and wife, kind of, sort of, but they're not married. And friends, I got to say that this does some dishonor to the institution of marriage. Marriage is also dishonored by adultery. I, I don't think you can see it in any way. Marriage is dishonored by neglect. And aren't there many families where there's two people, a husband and wife living together, but they're essentially roommates. There's no shared life. There's no investing one into another. It's just neglect. That dishonors marriage. And then if you want to talk about on a broader cultural way as well, you would say that marriage is also dishonored by redefinition in our culture today. Friends, you look at it all together and it's kind of staggering. You would say in our culture at large, marriage is dishonored by divorce, by living together outside of marriage, by adultery, by neglect, by redefinition. Nevertheless, God's principle stands. Look at it there in verse four. Marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled. Look at that second part of the phrase, the bed undefiled. You know what he's speaking about? He's not speaking about your mattress. He's not speaking about your sleeping habits or the snoring habits of your spouse. The bed undefiled is obviously a very diplomatic way of referring to sexual relationships in married life, in married life. That is undefiled before God. Do you see how wonderful, how important that is for us to understand? The Bible gives a great big thumbs up to sexual life within the marriage covenant. It's just fantastic, wonderful. But outside the marriage covenant, we'll talk about that at the end part of the verse. Friends, I want you to understand that when we take a look at this whole issue of sexuality from a biblical perspective, it, it, it's worth really thinking about. You see, I would say that the Bible speaks powerfully about the purpose of sex. What is the purpose of sex? Well, you could say one obvious purpose of sex is reproduction. I mean, that's how the human race sustains itself. No babies, no human race. And, and this is how God ordained that new babies come in. Do I need to go over this with you? It's, it's, there's a reproduction aspect to this. And this is part of God's plan. God wanted sexuality to be connected with reproduction. This is part of God's purpose for sex. But there's another aspect of God's purpose for sex. And again, this is obvious as well. Pleasure. God constructed this so that it would be a pleasurable experience. This is part of God's plan. It's not like a flaw in God's design. This is part of the reason that he made it. And this is an aspect of it. But friends, I believe that even though there is an obvious legitimate purpose in sex regarding reproduction, and there is an obvious legitimate purpose in sex regarding pleasure, 
that the church misses it if they think that either one of those define God's core purpose for sexuality. Let me tell you what defines God's purpose, core purpose, I would say, for sexuality. It's simply this. The main purpose of sex is to bond together a one flesh relationship. God wants to bring together a man and a wife together in marriage and bond them together. And there is a sense in which, and I'm not saying in the only way, this is a part of, this is one of the great reasons, the core principle for the sexual relationship to be part of the glue that bonds together a one flesh relationship. That's why God can say so emphatically, marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled. The marriage bed is undefiled. And this is what gives sex Meaning, oh, how this cries out in our world today for the church to speak with eloquence and power to the culture and say, you guys are missing it. There you are dining at your endless or seemingly endless, your your buffet of sexual immorality and sexual focus and distraction with as many partners as you want and your whole hookup and immoral culture and all that kind of thing put on it. But you know what? You don't know nothing about sex. You don't know anything. Because what you don't know and your whole approach to sexuality, what it doesn't get, and I'm speaking to the culture at large, it doesn't get that sex has meaning. It means something. It's not just a pleasurable body function, but it has meaning. And I speak to the culture and I say, you have stripped sex of its meaning. And now it is hollow and empty for you. And you know what's sort of laughable about it? They'll kind of look at people like us who at least endeavor to follow biblical morality in our sexual lives. They say, oh boy, you guys are missing out. Missing out? Are you kidding? In other words... You engage in something that has no meaning. And for me and my wife, we engage in something that is deeply meaningful and is like glue that sticks us together for our lives. And you think I'm missing out? Are you a fool? I wouldn't trade what you have for what I have for a moment. This is the word. We are in such a prime position to speak to a world that is aching and is in pain from the meaninglessness of their pursuits. And we can hold up high the flag of biblical morality and say, this is not only what God expects of us, but it is good. It is good. That's the message that God gives us to preach. So this is what gives sex meaning. It's beyond merely a pleasurable experience. And this is what God offers in sexual expression according to his will. And the world can't offer or match that. Now, when we understand that, everything else in the Bible, what it says about sex, makes perfect sense. Oh, if it contributes to the bonding together of a one flesh relationship, good, fine, makes sense. If it takes away from the bonding of a one flesh relationship, no, it's bad. Did you know that premarital sex takes away from the bonding of a one flesh relationship? Absolutely, it does. Do you understand what you're saying to perhaps your eventual partner when you have premarital sex? You're saying, I am willing to have sex outside of the bond of marriage. Isn't that a great message for you to say to your potential spouse going into marriage? Do you understand how powerful it is to say, no, Marriage is sacred to me. It's sacred before we're married, and now it's sacred when we are married. 
Everything that flows together with bonding together, the one flesh relationship, God says the marriage bed is undefiled. It's wonderful. It's great. Now, sometimes, and I think it's important that I speak about this, but I'm going to speak as, as appropriately as I can find words for Sometimes people bring up specific sexual behaviors and want to know if they are permitted between a husband and wife in marriage. And sometimes they'll point to this and say, the marriage bed is undefiled, meaning anything goes. Well, look, I, I am not a, a uh, sex counselor or therapist, and believe me, I have no desire to be one. I am a Bible teacher. But this is what I can tell you from the word of God. I can tell you this, that God allows great freedom in the variety of sexual expression in marriage. But everything must be done with a concern for the needs of the spouse and everything must be done in love. If it's done with a concern for the other and not merely oneself, if it's done with a concern of loving upon the other spouse, then friend, the marriage bed is undefiled. So this, this is what God says. But friends, understand that there is a satanic strategy. you understand the strategy of Satan? The strategy of Satan is something like this. Satan wants to do everything he can to encourage sex outside of the undefiled marriage bed. Every kind of sexual expression outside of marriage, it is in Satan's interest to encourage. And don't miss the flip side. He wants to do everything he can to discourage the sexual expression inside the undefiled married bed. So, friends, don't play into Satan's strategy. No. Rather, we should understand this. God has given us in married life this tremendous gift. It's a blessing from him, and it's the glue that will bring together a one flesh relationship. Time is slipping away from me, but I must say one more thing about this before we go on to the next concept, because it's pretty important as well. There are many Christians who ache in their marriages because they sense that their sexual life is not what it should be. And as I said before, friends, I'm not a sex therapist or counselor. I have no desire to be, but I can tell you this. A place to start, Now, I'm not saying this is where it ends, but a place to start if you want a better sexual relationship is prayer. And actually, praying with your spouse about your sexual relationship. I wonder how many people in the room right then thought, you can't do that. Well, of course you can do it. And no doubt it'll feel tremendously awkward. But if this is an area that God wants to bless and Satan wants to defeat, doesn't it make certain sense to pray about it together and realize that it's about more than just personalities? It's about more than just bodies. This is a spiritual thing, and it's a spiritual battle within marriage. All right, one more thing, and I have to include this. I said it's three parts in this verse four. But fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Friends, just as much as the Bible celebrates sexual expression in marriage, it also condemns sex outside of the marriage commitment. 
fornication and adultery work against God's greatest purpose for sex. Now, look, let's face it. And I don't mean to be a child about this, but either fornication or adultery may fulfill the pleasure aspect of the sexual act. I'm not going to say that there's no pleasure to be found in fornication or in adultery. But listen, you know the end of it. Because it doesn't serve God's great purpose for sex of gluing together, joining together a one flesh relationship, it's ruin in the end. So friends, please consider this, what God says very strongly, both the glory of a committed relationship and what God wants to do with that sexual relationship and then the difficulty and pain of sexuality outside of it, it goes against God's plan, against his will. All right, verses 5 and 6. I feel a little bit bad about this because I found myself in the same position at first service. Verses 5 and 6 may be just as important as verse 4. But I'm going to give it just a small segment of time because I, I hope we can just all get this pretty quick. Let me read verses five and six. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? You know, from the shorter amount of time I'm going to spend on verses five and six compared to the longer amount of time I spent on verse four, you would have a reason to think that our culture is very messed up when it comes to sexuality. But when it comes to materialism and contentment, everybody's got it wired. What a joke that is. People are just as broken in their view towards materialism and their level of contentment in life as they are regarding sexuality. But friends, I think we can just get to the point very quickly. God wants you to have contentment and contentment is something that nobody can buy. It doesn't matter how much money you have in the bank or how much money is coming your way. Without contentment, all the wealth you have is no use of no use. It's nothing. But contentment, look at what he says there, verse 5. Let your conduct be without covetousness. The idea behind covetousness is that constant itch for more, more. How much is enough? More. What do you want? More. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. How can you possibly be content with such things you have? I'll tell you how you can be. By knowing, look at what it says there in verse 5, I will never leave you or forsake you. Jesus is enough. I'm not saying that the material world is unimportant. We obviously interact with the material world and we need a place to live and we need clothes to put on our back and we need transportation, all those practical things. So I'm not saying anything like that. But you yourself know that real life is not found in amassing and having material things. Real life is found in Jesus Christ. Do, do you know that? Well, sure, that's worthy of applause. Do you know that? Do you know that? And if God has given you many resources in life, then thank him for it and use them for his glory. I, I, I kind of have the, the philosophy of John Wesley, where John Wesley said something like this. Make as much as you can, save as much as you can, give as much as you can. Do it. Great. Do it under God's glory. But, but friends, please take this very seriously. You know that contentment 
in your life does not come from a number on a bank account or by the car that's in your garage or the kind of address that you live at with your house, no contentment. That comes from Jesus. And that's why you have to look to him who says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Verse six, so that you can boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Isn't that great? I'm not at the mercy of any man, of anyone, because the Lord is my helper. Not fundamentally the banker, not fundamentally the guy who handles my investments. No, 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 the Lord is my helper. Well, good heavens, we've talked about brotherly love, people in prison, sex, and materialism. What possibly could finish up our list? Look at verse 7. This might be the most awkward of all. Verse 7. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. That's awkward for me to talk to you about. Basically, I mean, I I don't mean to put too fine of a point on it. If I am one of those who have spoken the word of God to you, you're supposed to remember me as a person who rules over you. It almost sounds like, all right, everybody, listen to me and do what I say. And, you know, it's awkward for a person because it's sort of understood that if I have to tell you to do it, then there's no real spiritual authority there or leadership there, is there? But this is what I hope for. I hope that the Spirit of God works so clearly and powerfully in me and in the other leadership of the church, because it's not a singular leadership of our church, but it really is a team. I mean, I regard myself as the captain of that team, so to speak. But believe me, we rely very much on a team leadership of this congregation. But friends, that as God works in us as a leadership and as God works in the whole congregation as a fellowship, if that's a word, that with leadership and fellowship together, The work of God gets done. And there is a place. There is a place for the people of God to say, look, Lord, I don't always get it, but I know you've put this man into a place of spiritual authority in my life, so I'll get it and I'll I'll follow. I know, and I sort of ache. I almost want to draw those words back and bring them back because I know how that has been abused by manipulative and controlling people in the present age and in history. But we can't act like verse 7 isn't in the Bible. It is. And there's a place for us to hear it. One caveat. Look at the end there, verse 7. Considering the outcome of their conduct. In other words, the Bible gives you full permission to look at my life and the life of any leader and say, is it real in their life? If it's not real in their life, you got every reason to ask a question. Now, please, I hope nobody thinks that it sets up a standard of perfection. Real in my life doesn't mean that I'm perfect or that I won't disappoint you or that I won't fail. But you know what? Real in my life should mean that when I blow it, I repent. That I keep a humble attitude before God and before you. That's what real in my life should look like. But I can't deny it. The Bible says, considering the outcome of their conduct, God gives you the permission to look at my and other leaders' conduct and say, is it real in their life? If it is real in their life, I got to respect that and in a measure follow how God leads through them.
Friends, what a list we've had to look at today. We've talked about general love among believers. We've talked about concern for the imprisoned. We've talked about sexual immorality. We've talked about materialism and contentment. And now we talk about recognizing leaders who lead well. So let me draw it up to a close with this. First of all, maybe you failed in regard to these things. You start, well, hospitality? No, that's not me. I'm pretty cliquish and, and uh, self-focused. Um, uh, sexual morality, uh, that's not me. Uh, materialism, that is me. Um, contentment, that's not me. Recognizing that, okay, maybe that, look, friends, if you failed in regard to those things, here's good news for you. Come to the cross. There's forgiveness for you. And not only is there forgiveness, I want there to be a new emphasis on hope in your life. Ladies and gentlemen, The life-changing power of Jesus Christ is real. He can change your life through his word, through the work of the spirit, through through the process of discipleship. But the life-changing power of Jesus Christ is real. And, And I think you need to look at those stubborn sins in your life all over again and say, no, Jesus, I want you to take dominion over them. Through your word, through the work of your spirit, through the process of discipleship, I want to submit these to you all over again. If these sins talk about you and your life, then you know what? Come to the cross. And there might be other people here. Honestly, you don't care. You don't care about living a sexually moral life. You don't care about letting brotherly love continue. You don't care about guarding yourself from materialism. Honestly, you don't care. And look, this is my word to you. Come to the cross. Just confess it to God. God, I know I'm supposed to feel this way, but I don't. Would you please work on this hard heart of mine? Come to the cross if you don't feel it. But then lastly, let's say you went through the checklist and you go, brotherly love, oh, good there. Uh, Sexual morality, good there. Uh, Contentment, no, good there. Uh, You know, uh, following leaders, no, good there. If that's you, then especially you come to the cross here this morning. (laughs) Because I don't know what's going on in your life, but I think you need to take another look. (laughs) And come and put your focus on who Jesus is and what he did for you at the cross. Father, that's my prayer. Lord, I thank you for your gracious work in this congregation that they will bear. And Lord, I sense that they even want to hear the difficult things. But Jesus, we need this. We need it. We need you to tell us how to live. We confess we don't have all the answers, but Jesus, you do. And so, Lord, I pray for the weak, defeated person. I pray, Lord, For the rebellious, obstinate person. Lord, I pray for the proud person who thinks they got all this wired. I pray that we would all come and put our focus upon Jesus himself. On the great work that he did on the cross. And that we would believe all over again. That Jesus, you have the power to change my life. Because you do. And you've proven it over and over again. We pray that we would let God be true and every man a liar and see your great work in our lives. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.